led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged reeled at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands, Asked. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray. Father, to say thank you is so trivial, so small a word for what Jesus has done. Like the criminal said, Lord, we deserve what we have done and the penalty of it. But Jesus had done nothing wrong. But thank you, Lord. Thank you that that is why you came. Thank you, Jesus, that you took our place. And now tonight, as we remember that, may we listen 
to what Ali has to bring to us. May we be empty and ready to be filled with what you, the Holy Spirit, has to put into our hearts. And may we celebrate what has been achieved at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, uh, Carolyn, um, for reading and for, for praying for us all there. Um, it's good to, to be here. It's good to be able to gather tonight to reflect and to remember on what happened on that first Good Friday and reflect on what Jesus did and what he experienced and what he went through uh, on that Good Friday. And Good Friday, on the face of it, when we look at it, seems like a bit of a, a misnomer. Uh, when we look at the events of what happened that day, what Jesus experienced, what he went through, it seems like a bit of a misnomer. And in the Christian calendar, there's no other day as poignant and as harrowing and as sobering as Good Friday. And we've read Luke's uh, account, Luke's gospel account of Jesus on his journey to the cross and some of that uh, humiliation and some of the brutality and some of what he experienced uh, in Luke's gospel. And I've got non-Christian friends who have asked me, and asked me recently as well, what is it that you can call good about this day? What is good about Good Friday? You've got an innocent man who was put to death, this horrible, gruesome death. And you've got you know, people who, who are Christian. Cruel method of execution. And what is good about this day? And the cross was brutal and it was cruel. And... There was no quick death. There was no uh, respite from the pain. There was no hiding place. It was public, and it was agonizing, and it was slow, and it was humiliating. And that was the point. See, the Roman Empire, they devised this means of crucifixion, of death, of execution, in order to set an example, in order to, to cast fear into the hearts of the people that they would not rise up against the Roman state, that they would not break the laws, that they would stick to the laws. Because if you came up against the Roman state, and if you came up against them and broke the laws in, in many different ways, you could expect this very fate, to, de- to die your death on a cross. And the condemned person could typically expect to receive a lashing, a whipping from this whip, which would rip the flesh from your bone, leave you exposed, leave these sores and these wounds across your back and your side. And if you survived that, which many did not, then you would be expected to carry your heavy wooden cross to the site of your uh, crucifixion. There you would have your wrists and your feet nailed to this wooden frame. And then as you were hoisted up and lifted up, when the the weight of your body could no longer hold up by the, the the nail-pierced hands, nail-pierced feet can no longer hold the weight of the body. Jesus experienced. And as we put them together and as we mesh them together, we'll see more of a fuller sense of what happened. And I hope as we do, as we move through each one tonight, that we, we will see at a deeper level more of what Jesus was going through, more of what he was suffering, more of what he was experiencing, what he was thinking, and what he was, uh, what he was completing as he uh, died his death on the cross. And the first word uh, that I want to look at tonight uh, is from Luke chapter 23, 
34. And it says this, this is Jesus' words saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the word of forgiveness spoken by Jesus. This comes at the point directly after Jesus has been nailed to the cross and after he's been hoisted up and raised up beside these two criminals on either side. And the text points us to Jesus uh, praying for those who crucified him. Praying for maybe the soldiers who were there who nailed him to the cross. Maybe the, the religious leaders who, uh, who plotted and schemed to have him killed. Maybe for those in the crowd who abused him and taunted him. And even at the focal point of all this hate and all this mockery, Jesus, we find here in this moment, is pleading with the Father for those who were his enemies. Those who would murder him, those who would mock him and humiliate him. Those who would draw straws or lots for his, his clothing. Those who were goading him from the crowd. We find Jesus praying for his enemy in this moment. How humbling is that to think of? Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, chapter 44, or verse 44, says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this is Jesus living this out in the most extreme of circumstances, the most extreme circumstance you could think of, the most extraordinary way he was praying for his enemies. He was praying for those who would persecute him and kill him in this moment. And this is the extraordinary forgiving heart of God. Jesus interceded for sinners, interceded for his enemies as he himself was dying on the cross. He fulfilled scripture where it says in Isaiah 53 verse 12, he bore the sins of many and he made intercession for transgressors. He prayed for his enemies at the point of his crucifixion. And we find ourselves in this scene tonight. I don't want us to, to look on this scene and think that we are just passive observers in this scene. I don't want us to think that we're just passive onlookers, just looking in and, and looking at these soldiers and looking at these religious leaders, looking at these, this crowd who were abusing Jesus, because we are involved and actively involved in this scene as well. It doesn't matter tonight whether you're five or, or a hundred or anywhere in between, you and I were actively involved in this scene from 2,000 plus years ago. And we may not have stood in Jerusalem, we may not have stood at the foot of this cross physically, but we were there and we were playing an active role in this scene. Scripture tells us that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And in that sin, all of us need redemption, all of us need atonement, all of us need forgiveness. And all of our sin is responsible for putting Jesus on that cross. Jesus came to pay for the sins of the world, including ours. We need his forgiveness and we need this atonement just as much as those who physically were there 2,000 plus years ago. And this cry of intercession from Jesus, as we hear him praying for his enemies, as we see him praying for those who would crucify him, Jesus prayed for us. Jesus prays us on the cross. The second, and Jesus says this, Truly I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. And this is the word of, of salvation. This is uh, a statement that we've probably heard and we've seen this scene so many times. We've read it probably so many times. And the scene is this, one thief, hours from death, we're told is reeling against Jesus, is abusing Jesus, is berating him and calling on him to save him and save themselves. And we see the other thief on the other side of Jesus 
stop him in his tracks and say this. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in this statement, we see Jesus' first prayer being, being answered almost immediately. This, uh, this prayer that he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We see in this statement from this man, this thief, we see this revelation of his own sin, this acknowledgement of his own sin, this acknowledgement of, uh, of his own deserving punishment. We also see a revelation and an understanding and acknowledgement of the sinlessness of Christ. He has done nothing wrong. He does not deserve this death. He does not deserve to be here. We do, but he doesn't. And we see something of this statement of that he, that he is a king as well. Where uh, We see his, his kingship where he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This king that will enter into his kingdom, he asks him to remember him when he comes in. And in his response, there's, there's a repentance here. There's, there's humility in this statement. And what do we see Jesus respond with? We see Jesus responding by extending grace to him, extending forgiveness, promising him salvation, promising him eternal life. And in this scene, we see this, this sinner saved by grace through faith in, in Jesus. This is a man who is at the end of his life. He has nothing else to give. He has nothing else to contribute. He can't turn his life around. He can't get down off this cross. He is nailed to the cross. And he won't be taken down off it until he is dead. Into the in his in his favor when it comes to God. All he can do is acknowledge his sin. Acknowledge who Jesus is and cry out to Jesus for mercy. And we see in this moment, we see Jesus extending that grace and extending that mercy. And it's a, it's a lesson to us that it's never too late to receive or be the recipient of God's grace or his mercy. Hallelujah for that truth. We see it in this scene. We see this man receiving God's grace and mercy from Jesus. Forgiveness is granted freely to every repentant heart. I've seen this scene and read this scene so many times and as I read it over the last week or so, uh, there, was a, there was something that was really sobering in it for me as I read it. And, it. and what it was, I saw these two men at the end of their lives, moments or hour or two from death, at the end of their lives. And as they were there, they were no more than probably 10 feet from the Savior of the world, 10 feet from Jesus as they died. And, and Scripture records and Scripture tells us about only one of them repenting and acknowledging him and, and being assured of spending eternity with him. And it struck me that you can be so close to Jesus, you can be 10 feet from Jesus at your death and you can, you can miss him. You can miss who he is. You can miss what he came to do. You can miss him. And my prayer tonight is that all of us gathered here no matter how close we think we are to, to Jesus, no matter how, maybe we've been in the church, maybe we read our Bible, whatever it might be, I pray that we will not miss Jesus. And the words that we read tonight, as we reflect on Jesus tonight, I pray that we will not miss who he is. And we see Jesus here, while fighting for every breath and straining for every word, we see Jesus offering salvation. And he says, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. 
And what hope that is for that, for that man to have heard that in his final moments, to hear those words, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. What hope that is for eternity and for the future. Thirdly, we are told in, in John chapter 19, verse 26, that Jesus uh, looked down from the cross and he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, who was John, nearby. And he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, and to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the, the disciple took her to his own home. And in this, in this word, in this statement from Jesus, we see his compassion and we see his care for his mother. This is made all the more extraordinary when we, we think of the context that he's in. We think of the, the moment of his deepest weakness and the moment of Jesus' deepest humiliation. Jesus was still able to see the needs of those around him. He was still not so preoccupied that he couldn't identify what was the needs of those around him, what was the, the struggles, what they were facing, and be able to extend compassion and care to his mother. John Piper says, how much more can he provide care when he's sitting on the throne of power and exaltation today for those who trust in him? His mother was certainly widowed at this stage, uh, probably destitute and, and looking at a very uncertain future. And in that moment, in this moment of his darkest hour, we see him extending compassion and care to his mother. And, and you might say tonight, listen, in the bigger picture of what this day was to accomplish, in the bigger picture of what Jesus was going to go on to accomplish, paying the penalty of our sin and, and making atonement for our sin, cancelling our debt with God, making a way for us to have a relationship with the Father, putting death on notice that no more would it have a hold over the believer. How, how significant is this in the middle of this? this? This seems a lot smaller. This seems a lot more insignificant than all of those things. But Jesus spoke these words. And in speaking these words, I think, and that it points us again to his compassionate, loving care. It points us to the fact that Jesus sees us. He sees our needs. Even in this moment of his deepest weakness and, and humiliation, he was not too preoccupied to see his mother's need. And he sees you tonight. He sees each one of us tonight. He is not too preoccupied to see what you're going through, what struggles you're facing, the anxieties that you have, the fears that you have, the worries that you have. The hardship, the persecution, all the things that you might be coming up against, Jesus sees you and he cares for you and he extends compassion to you tonight. Maybe over the last year, as we've, uh, this, this time last year, we, we, we weren't able to meet. We didn't meet this time last year on Good Friday with everything that was going on. And over the last year, uh, we, we've all have our struggles in lots of different ways as well. Some of us had, uh, have gone to places maybe we didn't fully think we could go to. Maybe we've thought thoughts that we haven't told anybody else about, but Jesus sees those thoughts and Jesus sees you in your struggle and in all that you faced, and Jesus cares for you. How comforting is that? To think that even on the cross, Jesus was able to see the needs of those around him and care for them. It's the third word of Jesus. Fourthly, Matthew and Mark both record that around the, the ninth hour, the, the, the sky had turned dark for about three hours at this period. And out of this, out of the darkness, we hear this piercing, anguished cry from Jesus. He cries in this loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, 
Lema Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this echoes the, the cry of the psalmist in, in Psalm 22, where he cries this same, this same cry, this desperation, this despair, this anguish is so tangible in his voice. And I find these words some of the most ransoming words in, in Scripture. You know, we've, we've spoken of the, the physical anguish, the physical agony and, uh, and suffering that the death by crucifixion brings. We've, we've focused a lot on the physical pain that Jesus experienced on the cross. But I think this cry, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think this reveals to us an even greater pain that Jesus experienced on the cross. And this was the, the cry of a forsaken son. Jesus was feeling at this moment the, the weight of this moment. He was feeling the weight of uh, the sin of the world resting upon him. He was feeling that combined with the wrath of God, which was judging and, and bringing judgment upon that sin. And Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. And the sin that he bore, though not his own, the forsakenness of God, the loneliness, the sense of abandonment. And in this, in this moment, as a substitute for sin, there was an experience of, of abandonment. The word forsaken means to be abandoned. And Jesus in this moment was feeling the abandonment to, to wrath, abandonment to judgment, abandonment to being crushed for our iniquities, abandonment to this punishment. And I don't want us to think tonight that this is a case of the father pitched against the son. Not at all. Not at all. But in this moment, Jesus, Jesus knew his destiny. Jesus knew that this was the plan of salvation from the beginning of time. And Jesus obediently went through with this, willingly and obediently. But even in his obedience, this, this sense of this weight of the, uh, the, the spiritual and relational agony that he was experiencing was crushing for him. It crushed him to the point that he cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To think of the, the most intimate relationship, the closest relationship that you have. And as good as that might be, and as intimate as it might be, and as close as that might be, that doesn't even begin the relationship between the Godhead. The closeness, the, the, the community, the, the communion between them, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God. But in this moment, where the wrath of God was experienced by Jesus, this cry was a response to that intimacy being being interrupted or forsaken. And this was Jesus suffering. Suffering spiritually, suffering relationally, suffering emotionally. This was a fullness of suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fifthly, John's Gospel states in, in chapter 19, verse 28, it's the fifth word that Jesus uh, speaks on the, on the cross, and he says this, uh, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst, I thirst. And scholars indicate a couple of different explanations for this, and different uh, maybe uh, ways to explain what he, was, uh, what he was speaking here. One is the very physical reality of his suffering, as the cross produced dehydration and respiratory failure. We can see the humanity of Jesus and his physical suffering and his physical pain that he was going to cross in that sense. You see Jesus in Psalm 69 where it says, 
give me sour wine to drink. And that's what he received. You see in verse 29, he received this sour wine. And what this speaks to us of is, is Jesus fully man. And it's also that he is fulfilling scripture. All the the Messiah, he is still fulfilling scripture in this. Fully man and fully God. And maybe another reason and purpose for asking for this drink was to enable him to say what he was about to say next. On receiving, I'm becoming weak, I'm going, I'm going to go, I'm going to die. This is it, this is it over. This isn't what he was saying. And this was a victory cry from Jesus, fully by Jesus. We should see and understand and have a, a sense of the weight of the seriousness of sin. But in these words, we also see here Jesus praying and interceding for his enemies, who we were once his enemies. Those of us now who trust in God and follow God and are, are, are forgiven by God, we, we were his enemies. He prayed for us while we were his enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we see in these words Jesus praying and interceding for his enemies, pleading for his enemies, for forgiveness of the Father. We see him extending salvation. We see him extending forgiveness to all who would repent and believe. We see Jesus, Lord, let us humble us. Let it humble our hearts. Let it humble us before you. Let it cause us to, to see the, the seriousness with which you view sin. Let, it, let us see the, the weight that was on your son Jesus. Let us see his humility as he went to his death. Let us worship and praise and give glory to you, Jesus. Lord, we are so thankful. We could not have done this for ourselves. We had no hope. Yet we can have hope tonight in the cross of Jesus. Lord, as we, as we come to a close in our, in our gathering here shortly, as we, as we worship and as we respond to you, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be set upon you. Lord, we pray for those who have not experienced this forgiveness or hope yet, that they would have experience it tonight that they would see you for the first time that they would respond to you and Lord that you will respond to them with mercy and grace Lord we thank you and we love you in your name Jesus